Hello everyone and welcome to Fintechs. This is where we speak with founders, CEOs, CMOs and other stakeholders in the fintech space discussing everything fintech, including marketing, retention, product, monetization and much more. I'm your host, Nadav Trentamoser. Today, we'll hear the fascinating story behind Birch App. From early days to exit. For this, we are joined by Alex Cohen, founder and CEO of Birch Finance, and now Senior Director of Strategy at Even Financial. Hi, Alex. Hey, how's it going? Thank you for having me. Thanks for coming. And this is exciting. Uh, for everyone that's listening, we are in a very cool podcast studio right now. Uh, it's a first for me, so this is great. Always happy to share the story and, um, you know, give, give advice over podcasts. Tell us a little about yourself. Sure. So, um, about... I went to undergrad, studied finance and information systems. Uh, I had always been tinkering around with the side gigs since I was 15 years old. Uh, I actually shared this yesterday. My first uh, company, if you call it that ever, was a uh, tennis racket stringing company. So I used to play competitive tennis when I was 15 years old. And my dad bought me a tennis stringer and I used to go around the tennis courts with little business cards and we would pass them out and I'd take people's rackets home. I'd string them overnight, bring them back the next day make 15 20 bucks a pop and that's a lot when you're 15 years that old is, that is amazing <laughs> and i didn't know you were a tennis player we should we should get a get a game sometime yeah we should do it now that the weather's <laughs> nice we can definitely play but yeah that was the first thing uh, i think that i had done formally and always was tinkering with stuff and it ultimately led me into startup life while i was in undergrad i will say that i spent way more time building things than i did actually going to class and uh, ultimately ended up starting a company we recently got acquired and, and now I'm building even more stuff in, in the tech world. So it's very exciting. That's amazing. So going back to the first company, what was Birch? How did you come about that? Yeah. So I, you know, like I said, I always tinkered with stuff. And one of those, one of those things happened to be credit cards. Uh, ever since I was old enough to apply for a credit card, I was figuring out how to use the rewards to take free travel. Um, you know, kind of hack the system, if you will, almost like what the points guy was doing in a blog I was doing for myself. Um, and, you know, it's, I think a point came around where I said, there's so many cards in the market. And here I am, someone who's financially literate. I understand these cards probably better than the majority of people. And there still isn't a good resource to tell me, am I using them like the, the most effectively or am I optimizing my wallet? What cards should I have? Do I even know all the cards that exist? And you end up with this over selection and over choice. And, you know, it kind of sparked the idea of, well, if I could sink into my spending and I could look at my past transactions, could I make a recommendation that's better than anything that exists in the market? and say, these are the four cards you should have. Here's how you use them. Here's why you should use them. And here's the, the net result you'll get, which is optimized rewards. And then we started building, uh, you know, it was a bunch of spreadsheets at first and a lot of data collection and research, but ultimately it led to building a, an app around it and finding the right partners like Plaid, who we integrated with to link into someone's bank accounts. And it went from very much being, you know, I, I didn't know what a startup was when I got started. It was mostly, you know, here's a problem that I think is big and exists and I'm going to try to fix it. It wasn't, I'm going to go build a company and try to raise money. I didn't know what any of that stuff was when sure. I got started. Um, and, and yeah, just, you know, by trying to solve a problem and figuring out, you know, how, how I could build the best solution that ultimately led to creating something like that. Always fun starting something for your own good and then uh, sort of expanding it to the public. Yeah, definitely. And, and I, I think it resonated with a lot of people because 
you ask anyone, uh, what credit card do you have? And they go, I don't know, one that earns rewards. And they always want more rewards and they want to know if they have the right cards, but no one has the time or the energy to put into it. And so I think we were solving a very real issue that almost every American has a credit card. Um, And so we were solving a real issue of like, you know, do you know how to work your way through hundreds and hundreds of cards to find the best one for you? That is fascinating. So the the software was actually looking back at your transactions. Yeah, so it was it's it was both retroactive as well as uh, forward forward looking. So retroactive in the sense that you know, we would look at the cards you currently have in your wallet. We would look at the spending that you put on those individual cards and then we would figure out the rewards that you actually did earn by having those by using those cards on those specific purchases and then the rewards that you missed by not using those cards on the right purchases so the utilization of those cards that you actually had and there was a lot that went into actually building the retroactive piece because if you think about all the all the moving parts that go into making a recommendation like that it involves um, knowing the reward programs of every single card that you're including on your platform and so that means i need to know the exact categories what rewards they earn if they were if they were earned in a particular time period where there was a a special bonus or if um or if it was a particular merchant that had a promotion going with with that card as well rotating categories of course yeah exactly so you know did you buy this or did you make this gas purchase during uh this quarter where there was five percent back on on the chase freedom card or you earn five times the points and you know that was probably the thing that took the longest was like compiling an entire database of uh what ended up being over 200 credit cards and we knew almost everything about the cards and how they earned rewards the specific uh, merchant category codes the specific merchants the time periods if there were caps if there were minimums if they rotated i mean you name it and we built what we called a, a card quirk around it but then it got even more complicated because you get into the issue of well i have a thousand or or a hundred thousand chase ultimate reward points um what are they worth and they're worth different amounts depending on if you redeem them for airfare or for hotels or if you transfer them to a partner and then it gets even more complicated because they're worth different amounts even once you transfer them to the partner so if i'm flying out of jfk or if i'm flying out of lax i'm going to get a different redemption value on uh united or JetBlue or whoever it is that that has dynamic reward pricing based on the segment of the flight and how it's priced and all all the craziness that that the airlines put into it and so we actually spent an equal amount of time building scrapers that went out and tried to dynamically calculate the value of a point or a mile, um, depending on uh, the the segment of the route, um, you know, where it was flying to and from, or time of day, or airline, and all that stuff. And so um, that ended up being a lot to maintain, and we ultimately sure. netted down to a, a generic average that we thought was a best, uh, you know, kind of a best guess there, but. Um, it's very complex when you have moving parts um, on both sides of the equation. Sure, and we'll, we'll, go, we'll go into the crawlers in a second, but what are you expecting people to do? I mean, they get a recommendation, and then are they supposed to know moving forward which credit card to use for which vendor, or how, how is that supposed to work? Yeah, so we talked about the retroactive piece, and then the forward-looking piece was uh, we built a feature in the app, which was a map, and it was at first built in partnership with Yelp, and we using their API, we were able to pull back local merchants and we'd look within um, a specific radius of where you were at using your geolocation. And we would guess what store you were in and say, 
this is the card to use at that store. Um, that was another fun, <laughs> a lot of moving pieces with that as well because geolocation is not always accurate and, you know, Target could be Target the big retail store or it could be a small mom and pop shop called Target Copy, which we had in Gainesville, Florida, <laughs> where, where I went to school. And so you don't actually know who the merchant is 100% of the time. And someone like Yelp isn't actually thinking about mapping all these merchants together in the way that we needed it. And so we built a lot of normalization on top of the um, the local merchants to try to get to a place where if you were walking into Bagel Express, we knew that it was dining. Um, and then we knew which cards you had in your wallet. So we could say, you know, use this card. It's going to earn you the most. Interesting. So so if we do go into the technical aspects now, you said building all these crawlers was uh, was quite a big of a job. Um, yes. And, and <laughs> you weren't actually connected to the credit card companies. So you no. were just crawling their websites and other websites as well, right? Yeah. So... We had really ambitious goals to build a redemption platform is what I always called it, where we we would sink into your, call it American Airlines account. We knew that you had 100,000 points in American Airlines, and then you told us, I want to fly from uh, Miami to, uh, you know, to Austin, Texas for South by Southwest, um, you know, next year. And then we would figure out, okay, that's going to take 35,000 American Airlines points. And how long will it take you to get there based on what you have if you had enough obviously you could book it but then what segments are worth the most and in order to get all that data as well as figure out what what are the most valuable flight redemptions we built a lot of scrapers that went to american airlines site and basically like a user filled in i'm flying from jfk to miami or miami to austin and um it would run couple million searches a day across all these different sites and we we did a lot of funky magic to you know to to not get caught doing it um and we ultimately stopped a couple months in because it was just so much to maintain anytime one of these guys changed their websites in any capacity the the crawlers break and so you either need a full team working on that which we didn't have or you need to prioritize that over everything else which we didn't think was the biggest priority at the time did you try going to the companies and trying to work with them yes and none of them want to expose any of that i mean that's their secret sauce is uh, is there's there's huge reward economics and there's um you know there's there's a lot of float to be made on the difference between what you're effectively getting that reward point or mile at and then how much you end up redeeming it for sure. and so they want it to be i would say a, a happy balance between people who are just redeeming they you know they get their one cent back or people who are you know really gaming and getting 12 cents back yeah. i'm sure we at some point could have put together a really interesting use case around it and, and i think there was right if you think about from an airline's perspective um, you're telling someone that they're going to reach this goal in 12 months that means they're using my card top of wallet for the next 12 months to sure. reach this goal and uh and top of wallet is is always the number one priority is how can i get my card to be used on every single purchase and so if we're able to engage that person that highly i think there was opportunity to be had there but we never we never ended up getting to that i, point. I completely agree so just to put things in context i mean what was the size of the company when you did this what is what was the size of the dev team were you funded yeah, so we, at our largest, we were like seven or eight people. Um, by the time we got acquired, we were four people. And we had raised a couple of rounds of funding. So we went through an accelerator. Uh, we raised our initial seed, pre-seed round through there with, um, with the accelerator and a few angel investors who came on the cap table. And then 
about a year after that, we were actually still in Florida and we raised from a group called Miami Angels and they're a big, uh, I guess, consortium of angel investors down in Miami who um, very like great people. They, they were fantastic angel investors. Um, most of our money came from Florida and they did really interesting things. They just weren't in the Bay Area like you would traditionally think. So, for example, the founder of Alienware who sold to Dell was one of our investors. Um, the Sprint CEO and his brother have a fund and they were one of our investors. And so uh, you meet some really interesting people in some of these emerging cities. And that's where we ended up raising um, the rest of our capital from. And then by the time we got acquired, we were four people. And, you know, and, and it was always the struggle of monetization, which is ultimately how we ended up joining even because it, it resonated. What even is doing and has been doing resonated with Birch since day one which was really building the infrastructure to allow folks like us to monetize through financial product recommendations without having a huge BD team or having a huge engineering team. We can't plug into 50 different issuer APIs. We can't go and manage 50 different relationships. And so um, we partnered with Even, and that's how we ended up meeting Phil and the team uh, to monetize Birch. And, um, and, and Even wasn't in the credit card space fully yet. And that's, that's how it ended up being a great fit. I was like, we can build this thing. And, and it resonated, right? Like I wanted to build something that would democratize um, uh, monetization and financial services. Cool. And we're definitely going to talk about uh, Even Financial uh, in, in a bit. But beforehand, you have a few interesting insights or tactics you used for retention and for marketing and yeah. for and a few ideas for monetization. It would be great to sort of start with retention. How are you, how are you managing retention for Birch? Uh, it was an app as well as a web app. Yep. So we, our life cycle, our product life cycle, uh, we started as a web app first, um, which I think is is a bit, of the opposite compared to what we traditionally see startups do, which is go mobile first and then go web way later. It's not a priority ever. Um, our our uh, hypothesis was that people are managing their finances and their rewards um, on the web using desk. They want the screen real estate. They're using their their desktop computers uh, versus like trying to do it on a phone is very difficult because there's so much data, so much optionality. Um, you're linking your bank accounts, which is another big you know friction point, and we had to you know get people to trust us to link their accounts. And so we thought desktop was the right move to start, but it was all built on um, you know microservices so that we were able to, uh, I would say, build our iOS and Android apps relatively quick, quickly once we prioritize doing those. And in terms of, again, you get the users, mm -hmm. and we'll speak about the marketing in a second, but how, how did you see retention? Was it uh, desktop notifications? Was it emails? What did, yeah. what did you do? Our number one by far source of retention and re-engagement was emails. So transactional emails, we, where we weren't pushing product offers, we were saying, you know, here's the rewards that you missed, here's some recommendations that you can do, trying to be as passively helpful as we possibly could. I mean, almost at the end of the day, if you look at our emails, uh, you almost don't even need to log into the app to be able to use the service. It all lives in emails. We were very big on if they're opening an email, that's great. You know, it's engagement. If they're doing it week over week over week, um, you know, they're going to trust us when the time comes when they're ready to open up a new product. And that was um, the plan there. And so we re-engaged in emails. We also did push notifications, although I think the emails performed significantly better. Uh, you know, people, email is still a fantastic source of acquisition, of re-engagement, of monetization. And so uh, we really focused on making our emails right. We had 
all these schedules around, you know, uh, drip campaigns. When do we send the first, the third, at what time of the month? What if two conflict? Like we really built out some, some cool email infrastructure and we ended up having uh, consistently 60 to 70% open rates with 20 to 30% click rates, which is abnormally high. That is amazing, <laughs> amazing numbers. So, I mean, when you look at email tactics, there are uh, two ways to go about it. One uh, is to give all the information through uh, email without mm -hmm. any need to go into the app. And two is this is just sort of a, a traffic generator to mm -hmm. your product. How yeah. did you go about that? Uh, you said most of the information users were able to see within the email. That's Didn't right. you want to send them to the app to have more traction within the app to see more features, stuff like that? Yes and no. I, I didn't want to. I didn't want users to feel like we were gaming them into going back into the app. It made no difference to me whether they use the app or whether they use the email if they got value out of it. And so, you know, we made it so that you could get value out of getting the transactional email. And if you wanted more and you felt like you needed more, you could click through and 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 then use the mobile app. But it really made no difference to us uh, because our monetization event occurred at new product acquisition and. Uh, you know, when someone's in market and ready to open up an account, they will go into your app and look at your recommendations if they trust your service. Sure. And you were talking about uh, drip campaigns before. Do you have any tips or tricks for drip campaigns? I mean, what, <laughs> what, is, the, what is the secret space between emails? Uh, what, yeah. what, what did you see there in terms of optimization? Uh, definitely whiteboard it out before you get started. Don't just start sending out emails um, right away. Uh, have, a, have a plan of what you want to do. I, I don't know if there's a right drip campaign or a right frequency in between emails, but what we did was um, immediately after sign up, you got a welcome email. I think that's very standard. Um, three days after sign up, you got a missed reward, and I'm trying to remember off sure, memory, sure. but um, three days after sign up, you got a missed rewards email, which said, hey, look, for the past three months, you missed out on this amount of rewards. I believe five days after you got a spending email that said, Here's, here was your spending for the last three months. And then, uh, and then a week after, um, I believe that's when we sent uh, like a subscriptions email that was like, hey, we found these subscriptions that you're paying for and like, here's the cards you should move them to because you got to pay them anyway, but you're missing out on rewards. So, uh, and then other than that, then we had um, once a month, I'm sorry, every Monday you would get a missed, and you still do if you're signed up, a missed rewards email that tells you your missed rewards for the previous week. And then once a month you get a spending email which gives you some insight into where you were spending. Uh, and other than that, we didn't do too many other emails outside of, um, you know, of course, if your bank account became disconnected or, um, you know, you forgot your password, things like that. But these were the very transactional drip campaign emails. And uh, emails are hard to get right. I mean, they, uh, I guess some other tips that we learned is use something like an email on Acid to test all your emails and make sure they're rendering on every single email client properly. Um, try to find the right like uh, graph library if you're going to be doing charts and graphs and, and think about those before you get started. So what we did was we we would basically take your spending, generate like a PNG of, of your chart and then throw that into the um, into the email as a PNG instead of trying to do anything, any, anything crazier than sure. that. But but those made the emails really valuable, like you seeing a chart like a bar chart or, or a list of merchants or um you know or or a line chart in your in your email i think was very engaging and and it's almost like you feel like you're in the app that's interesting i mean putting 
just replacing the chart with with a PNG is super easy to implement within an email, obviously, and not and making the emails the main thing and not constantly sending people to the product. I know I use lots of products where they say you got a message and then you sort of <laughs> yes. have to click that in order to get back to the product. That is pretty annoying. I mean, I do want to see the message in my email and then mm -hmm. decide what I want to do with it. Exactly. And I think there's some products where there are like regulatory reasons why they can't do that. So, for example, Short you can't chase. share. Well, and yeah. like uh, I'm thinking like uh, Credit Karma, for example, uh, they're not allowed to share uh, per my understanding. And this could be wrong, but they're not allowed to share TransUnion credit score details outside of the app experience. And so they can say your credit score went up, but they can't actually share what your credit score is unless it's within the experience. Um, and so I, that's why I think if you go back and look at like Karma emails, none of them actually have your real credit score in it because they're not allowed to do that. Um, not sure if it's regulatory or if it's TransUnion or someone, but it's uh, just all the partners, they're, they're not allowed to do that, anyone who's plugged into that API. Um, so some of it's not just pure gamification for the, for the sake sure. of it. It's that, you know some other reasoning behind it. That is interesting. And just to put things in context here, in terms of mobile and web traffic, what, what did you see? How did the breakdown go? Yeah, we were actually split pretty evenly um, between desktop and mobile traffic. So we had a lot of people who used the web app. Um, and I think the web app was helpful because it really... It was unique. I mean, none of our competitors really had a web experience that you could go to. And I think that was a bit limiting because web opens up the, the doors for anyone to sign up because then they don't need a particular device to download the app from the app store and then they don't need another app on their phone. Um, so, so I think desktop was a good place to start. I would do, I would probably figure out a way to do both mobile and desktop at the same time if we were to do it again. Sure. But I think having desktop is really important. And I see a lot of companies that don't have web apps still. And um, yeah, it's fr it, feels like a, it feels like a hole in kind of their product suite. Sure. I think hybrid technology is helping that now as well. Being mm -hmm. able to, to, to develop the one product across multiple platforms as opposed yes. to developing native Android, native iOS and web. So that's probably just yeah. technology moving forward as well. Yeah. And I think if you have the resources, always going native is, is the best. But if you don't, uh, yeah, work with what you have until you've got enough resources to, you know, kind of clean up that tech debt and then go native. Moving from um, retention to marketing, I mean, you have a few very interesting marketing marketing stories. I like the comparison pages, <laughs> especially. Uh, but tell us a little, how did you start with marketing? How did you initially get users? How did you get, get the users in phase two? And what were the strategies around that? Yeah, I think when we, so we, we had a few phases of marketing. I would say the first big push was PR. Um, we had our first exposure in TechCrunch Disrupt. Uh, that was kind of the catalyst for an article in, in um, Lifehacker and then an article in Business Insider. And, you know, we kind of were getting a lot of PR hits and it was signing up you know, a couple thousand users at a time. And it was great. It was it was free acquisition. Someone liked what we were doing enough to write about it. And, and that was great. And so that was kind of how we got our first five or 10,000 cold users into the app was just through PR and through meeting journalists and building relationships and um, it, we didn't hire a PR agency until about two years in. And then kind of the second phase was uh, digital acquisition. So we experimented with a lot of different channels. So um, social, we experimented with paid content. We experimented with um, uh, podcasts, like really anything that you could kind of throw a dollar behind and see if it would convert a user, we, we experimented with. And then... 
the third phase uh, was when we then hired the PR agency and let them go do work. And then we really just kind of turned the knobs up for how much we were spending in all those different channels. And uh, But going back, the first thing I would have done was focused on content as an acquisition source and not waited until two years in to then write comparison pages or articles or build content that people found useful. And I think the reason why we strayed away from it for so long was that you know, our whole mantra was you shouldn't have to read a blog to figure out how to use your cars. We want the app to tell you how to do that. And so we didn't want to write content because we thought that would be kind of contradictory to what we were building. So what was the content strategy around that? I mean, how did you decide what to write about? Typically, they say you shouldn't write about the actual product, but about things uh, behind that. Um, how did you go about that? Yeah, it was all focused on, uh, on on all the different credit cards that we had in our database. So we spun up um, so we had, you know, 120 active credit cards. So by active, I mean, you could apply for a credit card and, um, and get approved. Like it was active on the market. We had 120 or so of those in our database. And we basically spun up dynamic comparison pages that said Chase Hyatt versus, uh, you know, a smaller card, like trying to think of a very small, like niche card, but, um, but yeah, some some Bank of America cash rewards or student rewards. And it was kind of these long tail searches that people were doing every month, but no one was capitalizing on the organic traffic there. And we saw that become a really big uh, top of funnel driver for us because we now had like 1,200 different pages that were just this card versus this card, this card, this card versus that card. And, um, you know, you might have like a thousand people a month searching for it, but a thousand times a thousand is a lot of people searching for things every month. Yeah, that is amazing. A very smart, I don't know if an intended SEO move, <laughs> but definitely a, a very smart move yeah, to be it, able to just compare, I think you said around 1,400 uh, combinations of cards. Yeah, I think that's right. And, and it was a total SEO move. That was the priority from day one. We didn't know if it would be successful or not, but we said, you know, we don't have enough people to write. You know, I think when you're limited on resources, you just figure out how to hack your way through it. And that's kind of what we did for for our content pages was we didn't have enough content, right? We didn't have any content writers besides me and I couldn't write 1400 pages. So how else do you do it? Well, you spin up a dynamic HTML page that compares one card against another and you, uh, you know, you kind of scope out like you would with any other product, um, what you want the copy to be around those cards and what different pieces of, you know, comparison uh, info you want to compare. And so um, that ended up being a, a good strategy for us ultimately. And I wish we would have done it day one and figured out how to kind of build our SEO presence from day one and not day, you know, 700. Sure, sure. No, that that is very interesting. SEO, I think people underestimate the power of SEO, both for, for web and for app. And I think it's a, it's an amazing SEO for web, ASO, app store optimization for apps yeah. is an amazing source of, of traffic that can drive like crazy numbers of uh, yeah. crazy amounts of users to your, to your product. Yeah, and I think some of the most successful companies in the personal finance space got their start by writing very high uh, engaging content and owning SEO. I mean, they, they own the search results. And I know a couple companies that are in small business software and, you know, they, they're signing up 200,000 small businesses a month. And that's absurd. I mean, that's a lot of small businesses. And I remember asking one of the founders of these companies, like, how are you signing that? Like, what marketing are you doing? And he goes, we don't do any marketing still. Like we're, we're a multi-billion dollar company. And all of our acquisitions still comes from organic search. We are top when you search for this keyword and it's all coming from Google, Yahoo, Bing, whatever. 
That, yeah, that is mind-boggling. Yeah. And in terms of, you also uh, said you were doing paid search. What, what kind of results did you see there? What was, what was a user worth? How much were you willing to pay for it? Uh, we did a lot of um, uh, Apple App Store ads, and that was more the paid search that we did. And I think we were paying, you know, three or four dollars in install. And then you kind of have your whole funnel of out of those people who are signing up, who's linking accounts, and we tracked everything. Another thing, you know, definitely do early on is is get a great BI or like visualization tool so that you can really map out your user flows. We we did that kind of retroactively, but knowing uh, being able to tie back kind of your cost of acquisition to engagement to monetization, um, you know, and understanding what the LTV of a customer is is really important so that you can optimize those marketing channels. And we were able to do that with things like App Store marketing or. Um, you know, we did some like Google search campaigns, mostly social was the paid part of what we did. Interesting. Yeah, part of the the, the reason I'm doing this podcast is to help uh, future founders, CEOs um, moving forward. So getting to understand what you should have done is what they should do uh, mm -hmm. moving forward. And, and that's, I think this, this information is super valuable. <laughs> I mean, things you have to, you, you should prioritize early mm -hmm. on just to start working on the background so you can get relevant stats moving forward yep. is super, super important for, uh, for young startups, especially as they don't have any resources. Yeah, and in my opinion, the biggest two things that I would have focused on day one had I had known were monetization so can, not 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 profitability but can you monetize a customer and does your business model work not in theory but like have you made money from these customers or can you figure out how to and i think we we should have done that earlier on and then the second piece is um you know how can you acquire customers and can you prove acquisition and we always focused on that but i think uh you know that things like content and and really experimenting with um you know with all the different self-serve ad platforms that are available, we should have done earlier as well. Sure. So those, those would be my two big, big takeaways from having done this. So moving forward to uh, to monetization, mm -hmm. I mean, you had different ways to monetize within the app, but you didn't go uh, fully on uh, monetization. We when we when we spoke, you said you had a few plans that weren't executed in the end, including a credit card possibly and other <laughs> things. Let's talk about what you actually did and then what you plan to do and didn't end up doing. Yeah, so you know, monetization was difficult because we were in the Prime Card space. So you know, for those who don't know what Prime Cards are, these are these are cards like the Chase Sapphire or the City um, City Prestige, or really cards for a customer who's high FICO score, pretty good income. And, um, and to get the affiliate partnerships with these banks was very difficult. So we were able to get in the door with all of them and have pretty deep conversations. And ultimately we had a few relationships that came out of, uh, that came out of my BD work, but they're all expecting kind of a minimum volume of card applications that you can push through and new open accounts and they they have really high expectations and they won't spend the time getting set up if you if they're not confident that you're going to hit those minimums and in order to hit those minimums you have to have a high enough uh, or a large enough top of funnel acquisition so that enough users are converting and so it's this chicken and egg problem of you know where do i get the money to put into marketing knowing that i'm not going to get paid initially uh, to then build a relationship with a credit card issuer to ultimately get paid and kind of close that loop. And that 
proved to be difficult, um, you know, we were able to secure a couple of partnerships throughout the, t uh, you know, our time, but it was uh, a lot of conversations were like, we, we like what you're doing. We never really got any um, huge kickback from the issuers in terms of, you know, we think this is competitive or too transparent or we don't like it. It was like, we actually think it'll convert high intent customers, but you're not large enough yet. So come back when you have more users. That is typically the problem with with uh, with companies that size. Mm -hmm. uh, that's one of the things even solves. But we'll speak about that uh, yeah. in in a second. Do you try? Did you try going non-direct to different networks? We did, but we were so yes. We so we went to a few of the networks and we said, you know, look, you have the card relationships. We can be a sub affiliate. Uh, but the problem was that none of them were willing to link directly from the cards to the issuer site. They wanted to use their sites and their properties as an intermediary. I didn't want to break the experience and therefore, you know, I, I didn't want, I, it would have been an awful experience if I said, you know, hey, Alex, here's the Chase Sapphire card. It's great. It'll maximize your spending. You click it and it takes you to some rate table and then you got to go find the card and sure, then click out. Sure. <laughs> Um, and second stage, or at least thoughts you had, was to actually come out with a credit card. What, what were your thoughts around that? Yeah, I think towards the end, we, um, you know, we kind of thought, well, we're sending people to open up cards right now. Uh, we know what their spending is. We know that they can optimize rewards. What if we built a credit card that was dynamic and personalized based on their spending? And I would say towards like the the last five or six months of Birch, we. Uh, focused on trying to build out a credit card and secure um, a sponsor bank and, you know, and funding to do a credit card. And ultimately it was just, uh, it was just too premature. And I think it's, it's a difficult product to build because um, the economics are, are hard in the prime space. And so we, we didn't end up building a credit card, obviously. <laughs> yeah, economics are complex, especially if you want to sort of give a tailored solution per user and so forth. That, that makes it yes. even harder, I guess. Yeah, and, and so the concept was that we would go partner with a bunch of local merchants and we would go to them and say, hey, look, we have 5,000 card, card holders in your area. We know that they spend a lot on coffee, you know, hey, Bob's Coffee, we can uh, direct spending your way. We want a 10% discount for every dollar that comes through. And then we're going to pass 6% of that back to the customer. And and it would have been that sort of model where then we keep the float as well as the interchange. But, um, you know, it's a big operation you need a huge BD team, a lot of funding to launch a credit card. And and the economics, I think, can work at scale, but it would have been a massive undertaking. Okay, and then talking about monetization, the even financial came in, into into the picture. So, how did you find them? How did they find you? And yeah. what happened after that? One of our uh, mentors or uh, a guy that you know was helping us out, um, he was also working with Even, and um, I remember mentioning to him like, you know, look, we're we're trying to monetize. I keep talking to the banks, and you know, how do we get these card relationships? And he goes, well, look, I know this startup that's uh, could be a good fit. Like, do you want to talk to them? They they might help you solve this. And I said, yeah, like anything I can do to help solve the issue of monetization, I'm happy to chat with anyone. And um, and so we synced up with Even and and Phil and the team. And I remember our first conversations. It's funny when you kind of like think back to to those conversations. And now I'm a part of the company, and it's just a totally different lens. But 
you know, we talked about like integrating their API into uh, into our platform. We built, you know, some flows around because uh, even was more involved in personal loans than credit cards at the time. So we were going to try to do both concurrently. So personal loans and cards. And uh, we started to work with them. And ultimately, you know, their cards business wasn't built out to uh, the extent that we needed still to monetize. But it looked like an opportunity because I totally understood what they were doing. So just for context, even is an API that powers new product acquisition and financial services. So on one side of the marketplace, we have uh, large financial institutions. So Chase, Citi, Goldman, those those sort of partners. And then on the other side, we have uh, supply channel partners. And those could be publishers, personal finance apps. They could be um, really anyone because we're an open API in the middle. And we power um, all the pipes underneath. So. That means one integration for a credit card issuer and all these new distribution channels to market their products to, to end customers. And for a supply partner, a channel partner, it's one integration as well with multiple products, no BD team necessary, like no crazy engineering work. And, and we sit in the middle and, and we're building infrastructure in the space. And so in this case, we would have built uh, all of our card recommendations on top of Evens API had it been fully built out. Um, and not had to go work with all the large issuers directly. And, so just, yeah. just to give context, who, who are typical customers for or partners for even financial? So on the banking side, uh, you know, some of the card partners we have now are like Deserve Card and Pedal Card. So, you know, they um, they're like next gen credit card startups, but we're we're plugged into their into their card offerings. Um, so we onboard those offers into our system. And then on the other side, it's partners like, uh, you know, the Penny Hoarder or um, or Money Under 30 who can, um, you know, can use our API to recommend either personal loans or high yield savings accounts or credit cards and get paid for that acquisition. So we're, we're B2B to C. What kind of exciting uh, projects are you currently working on? Credit cards is the big one. I mean, we uh, were, were, you know, I got started, I built some uh, some stuff that we had that was kind of a dependency for getting cards launched that got taken care of. And now for the last six months, we've been heads down, like really building out a credit cards marketplace. And so um, I would say in the next like two to four weeks, actually, we should be partnering or should be piloting at least on a few of our partner sites with our initial card offers. And they're more down market. So different than what I did at Birch, these are more your near prime, subprime, thin file student cards. But they match the audience of some of our supply partners really well. And those will be the first, uh, that'll be the first version of cards that gets launched in a few weeks. That's the big one right now. So the legacy pro uh, uh, product was around loans. And now this is the second product you're launching for credit cards. That's right. And we're trying to follow in the same, in the same footsteps as loans because loans was fascinating. Like what Phil and the team built was uh, basically they took the pre-approval funnel of personal loans and moved it all the way up the funnel so that if you're on a, uh, publisher or a blog's website, you can actually get pre-approved personal loans within that experience natively. And that's still the case today. And that's what makes us so different um, because we're plugged into like a, a bunch of different lending partners, APIs on one side. And then as a publisher, your, your user submits their info one time, we ping all the lending partners, they return real pre-approved offers, and then we're able to natively display them in that experience. And that's totally different than going to any of our competitor sites, and I'm not going to say their names, but um, you know, going to using one of our competitors and having to click out to one lending partner, second lending partner, filling out your information five times just to see what your rate is. It's, you know, now it's just one form 
all these different offers and we're trying to move to that as well in credit cards so bringing the pre-qualification or pre-approval experience in cards all the way up the funnel that that is amazing and the main thing here is no hard checks right right no hard checks unless you uh finish the application and take out the product like so in, yeah. instead of going shopping and getting like five hard checks from the five different companies mm -hmm. you're getting only soft checks yep. um, and then the ones that approve you, you actually get the one hard check after that. Exactly. So there's no, yeah, no impact to your credit score. And then once you, um, you know, actually take out that product and the bank has to underwrite you, they'll do the hard credit check, but it's just that one time. And when you're pre-approved, it's a very, very, very high likelihood that you'll get pre that you'll get fully approved for the product as long as you didn't lie on your application. <laughs> so, uh, so what's next for Birch within even? I think that's to be determined. I mean, there's a lot of, I think, stuff in the background that people don't really see that we're leveraging around kind of, uh, you know, the way that we collected and stored card info in our system and kind of used it to map against people's spending. And I think we'll see over time how that evolves within even um, right now. I mean, we're really just leveraging the team uh, really strongly. We all have, you know, very deep card expertise and, um, you know, I'm excited that we're about to launch the cards marketplace because it's kind of, you know, it'll be, um, I think, represent, representative of what the team built at Birch, but now within within an API layer and marketplace. Amazing. Alex, thank you very much for your time. Yeah, thank you for having me. This was uh, very interesting. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Feel free to share the podcast with friends on Twitter and tag a guest you would like to hear in a future episode.